everyone and welcome to this 12th episode of our class action podcast series. This one's looking at the rise of state-based class action regimes. My name is Damien Grave and it's great to be joined today by three colleagues who are leading disputes and class action practitioners from across our team. Liz Poulos is a partner in our Brisbane office, Ante Gollum is a partner in our Perth office and Leah Watterson is a senior lawyer from our Melbourne office. Welcome to all of you, this being the first session as part of our summer edition of the podcast series. Today, we're going to take a deeper dive into the rise of the state-based class action regimes which exist across Australia. Australia's had a class action regime at the federal level for almost 30 years, and we now have substantially similar class action regimes in four states across Australia with the possibility over time of other states also having these regimes. To set the scene a little and by way of some context, there have been about 630 class actions to date across Australia since the commencement of the federal regime in 1992 until the end of June 2019. This data comes from the empirical research of Professor Morabito. Almost 75% or about 470 of these class actions were commenced under the Federal Court Class Action Procedure, where the forum is the Federal Court of Australia. The other 25% or about 160 of these class actions have been commenced under one or more of the Victorian, New South Wales or Queensland class action regimes. These have been the class action regimes introduced by each of those state parliaments following the lead of the federal parliament. And some of the largest class actions to date in Australia have been handled by those state Supreme Courts. The Victorian class action regime commenced about eight years after the federal regime and took effect on 1 January 2000, almost 21 years ago. New South Wales introduced its state-based re regime in March 2011. Queensland in 2017, and Tasmania just last year in 2019. Leah, perhaps we might turn to you as to whether you might be able to provide a little bit more detail around the position in each of Victoria and New South Wales. Sure. You've mentioned that Victoria was the first state to introduce a class actions regime after the federal regime was introduced. Part 4A of the Supreme Court Act 1986 in Victoria was introduced on the 1st of January 2000. 93 class action proceedings were filed in Victoria between 2000 and June 2019. Notable class action proceedings have included class actions arising from the Longford gas explosion and also arising from the Black Saturday bushfires. After Victoria, New South Wales introduced part 10 of the Civil Procedure Act 2005 in March 2011. 61 proceedings um, were filed in New South Wales between 2011 and June 2019. Notable cases there have included the airbags class action, the Queensland floods class actions, and the AMP class action, which proceeded after numerous competing class action proceedings were commenced across the Federal and New South Wales Supreme Courts. Outside of the federal jurisdiction, by reason of their greater longevity, Victoria and New South Wales have the most well-established class action regimes. Liz, would it be um, 
helpful to perhaps now touch on the position in Queensland. Yeah, thanks, Leah. So the current class action regime in Queensland um, occurred through the introduction of a new Part 13A of the Civil Proceedings Act um, from 1 January 2017, as Damien has mentioned. Prior to that date, um, the Queensland Uniform Civil Procedure Rules contained some representative party provisions. However, those provisions were pretty limited in their scope and they didn't provide an adequate framework for the conduct of class actions and modern class actions as we know them um, today. So the amendments to the Civil Procedure Act introduced a new regime which was substantially modelled on the existing class action regimes um, in the Federal Court in New South Wales and Victoria. To date under the new regime in Queensland we've seen seven class actions filed and there is a growing body of jurisprudence um, around interlocutory applications in each of those class actions and we had the first substantive hearing on the merits of one um, under the new regime um, earlier this year and that was heard in March and April. Um, that class action is currently awaiting judgment but it will be very interesting to see the outcome of that case. Ante, I'll hand to you to talk about Western Australia and Tasmania. Liz, thank you. As Damien mentioned in his opening remarks, we now have in Tasmania a class action regime that was introduced in September of last year, so just over a year ago. Um, and that regime is modelled on the New South Wales system. And the Attorney General in Tasmania, when she introduced that regime uh, last year, very much reflected the comments we've seen in other jurisdictions upon the introduction of these regimes, talking about creating greater efficiency for these sorts of litigation and also assisting individuals bringing their claims before the court. Uh, we've had a look at whether or not there's been any claims uh, brought under that regime in Tasmania, but apparently as we are here together today, nothing so far. Though there have been a number of uh, claims uh, suggested or raised, but I think that will probably be something that we'll, we'll see commenced uh, during the course of next year. Uh, in relation to WA, my home jurisdiction, we have been languishing um, out of the country. Uh, so we were uh, quick to move uh, back in 2015 where our Law Reform Commission raised the prospects of a, a regime similar to what is in place on the federal arena. Um, and that report recommended that that be done um, as part of amendments to our Supreme Court Act. Unfortunately, that report did not see our parliament move quickly to bring us into line with the rest of the country. Um, though that was uh, rectified where last year a bill was introduced into our state parliament to try and um, have that uh, brought in as part of um, the legislative agenda last year or this year. But unfortunately, I think with COVID and various other issues, that matter has seen um, no progress effectively and is sitting in our legislative council, our upper house. Um, and I expect probably post our state election, which is due in March of next year, uh, Damien will probably eventually see some move in, in WA almost um, six years after the Law Reform Commission recommended that we uh, adopt the, the federal regime over here as a state-based uh, answer to class action litigation. Thanks, Ante. So to date, the most active jurisdictions have been Victoria and New South Wales, but we can certainly expect some developments in other states over time. And as you say, Ante, we'll need to keep a, a close watch on Western Australia. Leah, there's been some discussion recently about class closure in the context of a federal court proceeding and also a state proceeding. What, what are you seeing in that context? That's right, Damien. There's been some recent focus 
on the approach that courts have taken in different jurisdictions to um, the application of class closure orders. Essentially, a class closure order is an order that requires group members to identify themselves by a certain point in time uh, as having an interest in any judgment or proposed settlement. If group members fail to identify themselves by the relevant time frame, their entitlement to damages may be extinguished. The full federal court has previously expressed the view that it has power under section 33ZF of the Federal Court Act to make class closure orders um, uh, under that provision. Um, this is a provision that says that the court may make any order that it thinks appropriate or necessary to ensure that justice is done in the proceeding. Earlier this year, the New South Wales Court of Appeal was of the view that the New South Wales Supreme Court did not have the power under its equivalent provision of 33ZF of the Federal Court Act to make a class closure order prior to mediation. In its view, such an order was contrary and inconsistent to the um, interpretation that the High Court um, had taken of Section 33ZF in the Brewster decision, and it found that making such an order uh, was not necessary or appropriate to ensure that justice was done in the proceeding. A similar view was then taken um, in another New South Wales Court of Appeal decision. Single judges in the federal court um, since those decisions have approved settlements where class closure orders have been made prior to settlement. Interestingly though, and for the purpose of this discussion, one area where Victoria differs is that it has an additional provision in its regime, section 33ZG of the Supreme Court Act. Now that provision allows the court to make an order setting out a step that a group member must take to obtain any benefit arising from the proceeding. If the group member fails to take that step by the specified time, uh, the group member is not entitled to receive any relief payment or benefit arising out of the proceeding. There is no equivalent provision to section 33ZG um, of the Victorian Supreme Court Act in the federal legislation or in other state-based regimes. This section has been relied on in a number of cases in Victoria to make class closure orders. So this express provision uh, may allow Victoria to avoid um, the position that's been set out in the recent New South Wales jurisprudence in relation to class closure orders. Thanks, Leah. In addition to the provisions you've just mentioned, touching upon class closure and facilitating class closure, Victoria has also recently introduced contingency fees from 1 July of this year. Are there any early indications arising from that provision that you might be able to share? Sure. Uh, it is certainly a key difference between the state regimes that um, Victoria has recently introduced group costs order or contingency fee legislation. Victoria is the only um, state to date which has introduced a law um, which allows the ability for contingency fees to be charged in a proceeding. These provisions were introduced with effect from the 1st of July, 2020, and they followed reviews into the issue by the Victorian Law Reform Commission in its report in 2018, and also the Australian Law Reform Commission's report, which was released in 2019. Group cost orders 
allow plaintiff law firms to receive a percentage of any damages awarded to all class members. Where a group cost order is made, the payment of the plaintiff's legal costs will be shared across all of the class members and the plaintiff law firm will be responsible for um, any cost orders and any security for cost order that might be made in the proceeding. To date, uh, there hasn't been any consideration um, of the operation of these provisions um, by the Supreme Court of Victoria, but we expect given the range of class actions that are currently on foot in that proceeding that these uh, provisions might be considered next year. It was mentioned earlier that uh, the federal court um, has seen the majority of class action filings. Um, it will be interesting to see whether the introduction of contingency fee legislation, together with that ability to affect class closure orders, which we talked about earlier, whether that will affect the plaintiff's choice of forum and whether there'll be any shift in that position over time. Thanks, Leah. As you say, it's still early days with the contingency fee legislation Victoria, and it's something for us all to keep an eye on and see how it begins to unfold from here. Liz, we might just turn back to Queensland if we could for a moment. There's been a recent decision in Queensland on the impact of a funding agreement. Do you see any trends arising from that decision? Yeah, thanks, Damien. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, on the 13th of November, um, the Queensland Court of Appeal handed down a judgment in one of the first um, matters filed under the new Queensland regime, the Murphy Operator Class Action. Um, and the Queensland Court of Appeal held that the litigation funding arrangements in that case were permissible um, and were not impermissible due to public policy. Um, the application came around in a quite a strange way. Um, the decision arose following an application by the defendant for security for cost in the class action and the plaintiffs then sought a declaration that the relevant funding agreements in the case were not by reason of maintenance, champity or public policy unenforceable. Um, the plaintiffs sought to distinguish their case from the seminal decision of the High Court in Fostiff, which was delivered nearly 15 years ago in 2006, which paved the way for litigation funding in Australia. And it's interesting that despite the High Court's decision in Fostiff, questions about the theoretical ills of litigation funding are still finding their way to superior courts in Australia. Um, the Court of Appeal noted that the appellants had based their case wholly upon an invitation to the court to find a risk that the funding agreements in that case um, corroded the court's integrity. Um, but the Court of Appeal noted that they weren't able to point to any single specific real danger of that actually occurring. So ultimately, the Queensland Court of Appeal rejected um, the plaintiff's argument that the funder potentially had too much control over the litigation in this case facilitated by the relevant funding agreements. Um, instead, the Court of Appeal held that, the litiga that litigation funding is vital to facilitating class actions and the arrangements in this particular class action were appropriately formulated. It will be interesting to see whether special leave is sought um, and whether it's granted and just to watch more generally about what more courts are going to be um, saying in relation to the appropriate limits of control around funding um, and the content of funding agreements. Thanks, Liz. As you mentioned, it really is interesting that the High Court looked at these issues in Foster almost 15 years ago and it's arising again 
in your Absolutely. Ante, changing tax slightly, um, the, the issue of competing class actions has arisen, of course, not just in the context of class actions in one court. There have been examples of an action commenced in the federal court and then another commenced in a state court under a state regime and vice versa. How are courts dealing with that issue and what's your assessment as to how it's going to date? Damien, thank you. I think the courts can be described as taking a very practical approach. So in relation to our long-standing regimes in New South Wales and Victoria, both of those jurisdictions have entered into protocols with the Federal Court of Australia to arrange how those matters are to be dealt with if and when we had competing class actions uh, commenced in those Supreme Courts and the Federal Court. And I, I think it's really um, intended to avoid unnecessary litigation cost and time being spent um, where there might be uh, various hearings and uh, issues about transfer of proceedings between courts. Um, as I said in those opening comments, it's very much a practical approach to um, that system where effectively the protocols that are in existence, and New South Wales has had one for longer than Victoria. So in New South Wales, we've had a protocol for a couple of years, Victoria about a year or so. And under both protocols, there's a, a mechanism where there can be a joint case management conference convened between the various competing class sections. So for example, if there's a class action in the New South Wales Supreme Court and one in the Federal Court, um, the court would convene with judges from each of those jurisdictions sitting um, and reviewing the matters collectively to determine whether or not there is a preferred way of dealing with the matters. And that might be through the cases being managed in parallel. It might be through one jurisdiction having its matter transferred to another jurisdiction, or very much intended to facilitate a, a quick and efficient resolution of those proceedings. And um, our audience might remember, you know, some of these issues were laid um, uh, bare in the AMP class action where we had that situation of a proceeding in the New South Wales Supreme Court, and, and then I think up to four proceedings um, commenced in the federal court, um, and there, there were issues of as to where the matters should be heard and determined. And um, as a result of that experience, I think um, the members of the judiciary determined that needed to be greater uh, practical cooperation to ensure that these matters do not slow down um, the determination of these sorts of proceedings. Um, I think it's fair to say that the protocols seem to be working well. Um, so I suspect it will be only a matter of time before Liz sees something in Queensland um, as things develop with that regime. And in due course, no doubt Tasmania might consider it and you know, even in WA, once we get a regime going, we might consider uh, adopting a similar approach in due course, Damien. Thanks, Ante. Leah, we might just turn back to you for just a quick word around shareholder class actions. Most of them, as we know, have been commenced to date in the federal court, but this has not always been the case. There have also been some shareholder class actions commenced in state courts. Um, there's been some recent discussion about the most appropriate forum for such actions. What's the current thinking on that issue? It's true that class actions have predominantly been filed in the federal court, and the reason for this trend is unclear. It may simply be that the federal regime started first, um, or that the key provisions litigated in these actions are generally in federal legislation, or it may just have been the preference of plaintiffs to commence in that forum. Given the number of 
securities class actions initiated in the federal court and the court's familiarity with handling those matters. The Australian Law Reform Commission in the report that it released in early 2019 recommended that the federal court be given exclusive jurisdiction over securities class actions and also over class actions relating to any financial products or financial services. Proponents of the view state that the federal court has developed jurisprudence to manage these cases effectively and that it prevents litigants from forum shopping. Those opposed to the recommendations are of the view that the plaintiff should be able to select the jurisdiction that they prefer. At this stage, the Australian Law Reform Commission's recommendation has not been adopted um, and plaintiffs can commence securities class actions in either the federal court or in a state-based court. Thanks, Leah. An another topic to watch with, with interest over the next period. Uh, we might, I think, leave it there for today. That's been a great discussion in just touching on a few of the key issues on these topics. We could have spent quite a while on each of those, those areas. Thank you all for sharing your thoughts and insights. Thank you also to our clients for the opportunity to discuss these issues with you. It's our privilege to work with you and to assist you as you face some of these issues across the federal regime and right across Australia. We hope you found this a helpful discussion today and you all have a good lead up to the end of the year. We look forward to joining you uh, again soon. Until then, stay safe everyone and thank you.